Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I want to start with a little bit of review tonight because I want us to remember that this is one big sermon. We've been looking at it in bite-sized chunks, but this is the Sermon on the Mount, and we've, this is one huge sermon. And so when you think about how long the sermon is, I don't know how long Jesus preached, but it probably wasn't a 30-minute, you know, little sermonette for Christianettes type, you know, five, five principles for living. That he, This was probably a pretty long sermon. But let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1, and I want to walk us through where we've been so far. To, to, to get context, because tonight we're honing in on kind of the ending of the sermon, okay? So Matthew chapter 5, let's just start in verse 1. We're really going to be looking at Matthew 7 tonight, but I want to just back up and get the bird's eye view of where we've been up to now so that we can see this sermon as a whole, as a unified whole. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, number one we've got to remember is that Jesus is addressing his disciples. Now there's the crowds that are there listening, but this is a sermon specifically to those who've already been saved, who've already been entered into God's family. Okay, so he's, he's, Jesus is making the assumption that his hearers have already repented and believed and are Christians. And so this is a sermon towards believers. And how does he start the sermon? Does he start with telling us things that we're supposed to do? Or does he start with who we are? He starts with who we are. He could have, Jesus could have started with a bunch of commands of what we're supposed to do, but that would get the cart before the horse because then we wouldn't understand the power we have to do it. We wouldn't understand um, the grace behind who we are in Christ. So he starts with the Beatitudes, which are really blessings that Jesus gives to his believers. And if you remember some of these, being poor in spirit, having this attitude that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, mourning over our sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, um, you know, blessed are those when you are persecuted. So really, a Christian lives a life of radical humility and dependence upon God for everything because they've been recipients of grace. Now, this radical lifestyle that we live is going to bring persecution. Blessed are those who, blessed are you when you are persecuted. And so once Jesus addresses who we are in Christ in the Beatitudes, he shifts gears and says, okay, this is how you live life in light of who you are. And he says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill them. And actually, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. So your righteousness needs to be greater than the Pharisees. And we looked at the type of righteousness the Pharisees had was external. It was legalistic. It was focused on um, appearance. Um, It was not getting down to the heart of the issue. And so Jesus is saying a a true Christian is going to have a heart, a heart to obey God. And then he talked about the difference between, I think I drew that drawing, that there's the, the root sins 
and there's the fruit sins that a lot of times we focus on fruit sins like adultery or murder. And Jesus says, yeah, those things are sins, but oftentimes we don't address the root sins. So if you're angry with somebody, it's the same thing as murder. You've murdered them in your heart. If you lust after someone, it's the same thing as committing adultery in your heart. So Jesus begins to address the heart issues here and begins to talk about those types of things. And then, as we saw last week, as we got to chapter 6, Jesus addresses three big areas of outward piety or outward religious show that the Pharisees did. Uh, Giving to the poor. We talked about that. Prayer. And fasting. And he said, you need to do all these things. These things you need to do, but there's a way you go about doing it that you're not hypocritical, where you don't draw attention to yourself, and you don't do these things to be seen by others, so others will look at you and say, look how awesome you are. Um, So when you give the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. When you pray, go into secret and don't make a big show of it. We looked at the Lord's Prayer. When you fast, don't make yourself look like all haggard, but, you know, take a bath and wash your face and, and fast. Then he talked about treasures. So he shifts gears and says, okay, I'm going to start talking about money, where your treasure is, there's where your heart's going to be. You can't serve God and money. And then he said, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your daily needs because God knows what you need. And the ultimate thing that we kind of ended up with last week was Jesus' ultimate issue kind of in the crescendo here is to seek... First, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this theme of righteousness has come all through the Sermon on the Mount. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Seek first the kingdom of righteousness. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. We, we talked about how that may be righteousness that... Oh, I'm actually, that's what we're talking about today. I'm preempting myself. I'm kind of getting confused about what we talked about last week. So, seek first his kingdom. That was at the very end of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Okay? So that's a big picture. Beatitudes, heart issues, obeying the law in our hearts, Prayer, fasting, anxiety, giving to the poor, forgiving others. And now we move into chapter 7, where Jesus is going to um, begin to bring things to a close. And we're not going to look at the the close of the Sermon on the Mount, because we're going to save that for next week. But let's look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And I would submit to you that this right now, currently, from what I've seen, is the most quoted, most well-known Bible verse that non-believers know. It's surpassed John 3.16. In the past, if you were to ask people, hey, somebody on the street, name a Bible verse. Most people would know John 3.16. Here's the verse that most people know now. You ready? Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Right there. That's the verse that most people in our world will quote that may not even believe in the Bible, but they'll quote that back to you. Don't judge lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log or the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now there's a lot of misunderstanding on this passage of Scripture. Let me just ask you a question tonight. We'll maybe have a little bit of a dialogue here. Is Jesus saying we should never ever make moral judgments or any discernment or or never call something right and wrong? Is that what he's saying? Okay, he can't be saying that. So we have to figure out what is he saying when he says don't judge. What's the word he uses there? You hypocrite. Is there a hypocritical way of judging others? Yes. So what he's saying here is this. We are to make judgments as a church family in regards to unrepentant sexual sins that demand church discipline. Okay, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here is don't hypocritically stand in the place of God and be judgmental towards others when you yourself haven't taken care of business in your own life. Okay, but we have a lot of passages of Scripture that teach that we as a church are to make judgments. Okay, so let's look at some passages where the church is to make a judgment. If you guys remember way back last spring when we looked at 1 Corinthians... Some of you are like, I can't even remember way far back then. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was an incestuous relationship in the church where a man was having sex with his mother or his mother-in-law. And the church was putting up with it. And Paul comes to the church and says, why are you guys putting up with this? Why are you guys celebrating this? This is wicked. And so this is what Paul tells them to do in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 6. When you're assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What's what's Paul saying there? When you guys come together as a church, you need to exercise church discipline. Call this man to repentance. If he doesn't repent, you as a church has every right to kick him out, and, and therefore the church has made a judgment have they not? Has the church, in a sense, said, we have come together and made a judgment on this man's behavior, and we're kicking him out based upon unrepentant sexual sin? So Paul gives permission here for us to make a judgment. So when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, that's not, a lot of times what happens is this. I've had it said to me multiple times on Facebook, which I'm finding out Facebook's not a good place to post stuff because you can't have really good dialogues because people instant, what's the word, instant message you and just like go off. There's a lot of comments that have come to me that you guys don't see publicly on stuff that comes. But anyway, like for example, I may post a I may post something about gay marriage or, 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 or the homosexual movement or gender issues and normally what will happen is somebody will come on and says Christians aren't supposed to judge. You're judging. You're judging those people. Let me ask you a question. Am I judging if I am making a statement based upon what the Bible says? I would answer I'm making a judgment, but I'm not judging. What's the difference? I'm making a judgment saying God's word says this, but I'm not saying to that person in particular, 
you're scum of the earth, I don't like you, I hate you, you don't have any business existing, and I really want you dead. Okay? There's a big difference between those two, right? Okay. So we are allowed to make judgments as Christians. Paul says here as a church, make the judgment to kick this guy out. Now, what about false teachers? We are to make judgments about false teachers who preach another gospel and distort sound doctrine. What does Paul say in Galatians 1, 8 and 9? Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned, let him be eternally sent to hell. As we've said before, so we'll say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What happens if somebody walks in here today and begins saying from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class, hey, you know what? Jesus isn't really God. He's actually Michael the archangel, and he was the first spirit created by God. What would you say? That person's a false teacher. They're a Jehovah's Witness, by the way. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And you would say, we've got to make a judgment. What you're saying is wrong. Okay, you're making a judgment about what they're saying. All right. We are also commanded to test the spirits and use discernment to be aware of false prophets. In 1 John 4, 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay. There's a huge difference between making a judgment on a moral issue or a doctrinal issue versus being judgmental okay so when jesus says judge not lest you be judged he's not saying don't be discerning don't make any moral judgments don't call sin sin what he's saying is don't be hypocritically in judgment of another person in the place of god basically what he's saying is we cannot stand in the place of god and pronounce a judgment on someone's salvation if if we will somehow be exempt ourselves from the day of judgment okay can we pronounce a person to not be saved let me ask you the flip side can we pronounce a person to be saved i don't think we have permission on either side only god knows the heart And all of us are going to stand on the day of judgment. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't play God and act as if you're better and be judgmental against someone when you've got sin in your own life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We have to give an account of ourselves to God, not to other people, in the sense that of our eternal salvation. So when Jesus is saying don't judge, he's, he's basically saying don't hypocritically judge others as if you're God and getting all on them for their sin, but you have major issues in your own life. And what illustration does he give there? Well, let's look at this James passage, James four ten through 12. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but the judge. There is only one lawgiver 
and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, we looked at this last week and the word carries over into chapter 7. What was one of the key words in chapter 6 that was repeated over and over again? You hypocrites. You hypocrites. So it's carried over here again. And what does Jesus say in verse 5? You hypocrite. So what he's really charging against is a hypocritical type of judging or judgmentalism and then he gives an illustration what's the famous illustration you're going to go pick out a little any bitty little sin in somebody else's life and get all on them when you got this huge plank in your own eye okay think about the visual imagery that jesus uses here you're going and, and like, what's a speck? A tiny little thing. You're getting all over somebody else's tiny little speck, and you've got this huge beam coming out of your eye, which makes you blind to yourself. And you're so, you're so blind to yourself that you're not seeing your sin, but you're so focused on somebody else's sin that you want, you want, you want the worst for them. You want to cut them down. You want to be judgmental, but you don't, you're so blind to your own to your own self. And that, that's what it means to be hypocritical. So the issue here is selfish pride that blinds us from seeing our own sin while standing in judgment over others. Okay, let's turn to 2 Samuel. Keep your finger in um, Matthew, but let's look at an Old Testament example of somebody who was being a hypocritical, judgmental person that did not see the plank in their own eye but was looking at everybody else's speck. Okay, so 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. Actually, we can keep going in that passage of Scripture, but what's the story? Do you guys remember the story of David and Bathsheba? What does David do? He really commits all, he breaks all Ten Commandments, Okay. Number one, we always think he commits adultery. Okay, yes, he commits adultery. But before he commits adultery, what does he commit? Theft. He steals somebody else's wife. He covets somebody else's wife. So he covets and steals before he even commits adultery. And then he murders, and then he lies about it. Okay? And then in all of that... He's dishonoring God, he's dishonoring his parents, he's dishonoring his nation. And so Nathan the prophet comes to him and basically tells him a story. And let's look at Second Samuel 12 where David really can't see sin. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I mean, can you see the picture here? This poor, this poor guy had enough money to buy one little tiny lamb. And that lamb was the apple of his eye. I mean, it was his, it was his own little, it was, almost like a, it was almost like a pet, more than a pet. I mean, it was... It was just this beautiful, cute little lamb that was so precious to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the king has everything he needs, all the lambs he wants. doesn't want to take from his own, so he goes over and steals that one guy's poor little lamb and uses it and kills it to feed this traveler. Okay, now that's the parable. Look at, look at number five, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. So David gets upset when he hears this story because he's thinking, that's not fair, that's not right, that's theft, that's, you know, this is unjust. I can't believe somebody would do that. He deserves to die. And then Nathan says, well, I'm talking about you. So David is so blinded, he's got such a huge plank in his eye that he can't see, or he, I mean, he, he, he can't see reality. Now, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to see something very carefully, because this is something that people miss a lot, and we've got to take the time to talk about it. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, remember what I said. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't make discerning issues. We shouldn't make judgments about sexual issues. We should not make judgments about church discipline. We should not make judgments about false teachers. What it means is, is that we shouldn't hypocritically stand in the place of God and make judgments on other people when we don't take care of business first. But I want you to look at verse 5. You hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye. A lot of people stop right there, but keep reading. And then you will see clearly to do what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus gives us permission to address the speck in others. This is not carte blanche to ignore sin to let bygones be, I mean, to, to kind of brush sin under the carpet. Jesus says, you need to address sin. But if you're going to address sin, make sure you've dealt with your own personal sin first. Then you will be able to see clearly how to address it with your brother. And we've got a passage of Scripture that supports that. Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 4. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's almost the same thing of saying, take the speck out of your own eye so that you can address, or take the log out of your own eye so you can address the speck in your brother's eye. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Address his transgression, address his sin, maybe even rebuke him, confront him or her, but do it in an attitude of gentleness, but you have permission to do it. Paul says there you should do it. Jesus here gives us permission to do it. But notice what Paul continues to say. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens as so to fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So, this verse, judge not lest ye be judged, is used by non-Christians all the time to throw back in the face of Christians that we shouldn't address sin, we shouldn't address moral issues, we shouldn't quote the Bible. Anytime you even quote the Bible on this, you, well, you're judging, you're judging. No, I'm quoting what the Scripture says about an issue. Now, if I came to you and said, 
like, it would be like this. I'm out railing against a person who's living a homosexual lifestyle, and I'm in their face and saying, you're an idiot, and you're terrible, and you're going to hell, and I can't believe you're living this way. You're, you're so, um, you know, this is so godly and immoral, this is a homosexual lifestyle, and, I, and I'm being so judgmental of that person, just pounding them, and at the same time, I'm having an adulterous affair that's heterosexual. You see the, the, the dichotomy there? That would be a hypocritical, judgmental attitude for them. Now, what happens if I, you know, if you're pure and you are um, addressing an issue and you go to that person to say, listen, I love you so much that I want to share with you what God's word says about what you're doing. And let me share with you the truth. And let me try to win you as a brother by showing you what the scripture says. I'm still going to address the truth and I'm still going to confront you, but I'm going to do it in a spirit of gentleness. And I know I've got faults myself and I know I've got sin, but I'm just sharing with you what the word of God says. That's the biblical way to do it. Jesus is talking about being judgmental in the place of God. Now, before we go any further, do you guys have any questions on judging? All right. Does that make sense? The type of judging Jesus is talking against and the type of judging we're allowed to do? Let's talk about the danger of being undiscerning. Because right after this, Jesus says, you've got to make some judgments. <laughs> right after he says, don't judge, he says, you've got to make some judgments. Now, it's kind of a roundabout way Jesus says that, and we have to kind of figure out what he's saying. But look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay. What in the world is Jesus saying there? Pigs and dogs. Pigs and dogs. Now you guys tell me just a little bit. In that, what you know from the Bible and what you know from Jewish culture, what were pigs considered? Unclean, unruly, gross animals. Dogs, when we think of dogs, what do we often think of? A nice domesticated pet that we cuddle. Back then, dogs were more like like wild pack dogs that are ravenous and that came and, and basically attacked. So you've got unclean pigs and attacking dogs. And Jesus says, don't throw, your, don't throw what's holy before these attacking dogs and don't throw what's costly, these pearls, before swine because they're just going to turn on you, they're going to attack you, they're going to trample. What in the world is this? Well, really, these, these two images serve as a metaphor for people who wickedly, decisively, and rebelliously reject the gospel. Okay? So what is holy in this passage of Scripture, and what are pearls? It's the Word of God. It's the gospel. And there comes a point where you have attempted to present the gospel, you've attempted to share your testimony, you've attempted to to speak truth to a person, and they become so violent, so belligerent, so um, unruly, that at some point you've got to say, you know what, I've washed my hands of you, I'm going to walk away, and I'm never going to share the gospel with you again, because obviously you've rejected it, and you've become so hostile towards me that I'm, I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm not going to give it to you anymore. You've proved to me that you're, you're, you're unwilling to accept it. Now, that's probably bringing up a question in your mind, and I'm going to answer that question in just a moment. But let's go to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. 
Keep your finger in, 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 in Matthew, but go to Acts chapter 13. And hopefully this generates a question, and I'll, I'll try to answer the question in just a minute that I think many of you may be asking because I've had this question asked before. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, they're um, going into their first missionary journey. And what often happens when Paul goes into a new town, I've said this before, either riot or revival. Riot or revival happens when Paul goes into a town. So let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded to us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But... The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Basically, Paul and Barnabas said, you know what? We're not going to hang around here anymore because we're not welcome. And we're, just gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to waste our time trying to give you the gospel. We're moving on. Okay? Which brings up a question. The principle is we need to be discerning in how much of the gospel, what is holy pearls, we're to give to those who are, quote, hell-bent on rejecting it. So here's the question you're probably asking. When, when should I back off from witnessing to someone who constantly rejects the gospel? Where's that point? Okay, so you've shared the gospel and, and they're hostile the very first time. Does that mean you never share with them again? Or you've shared with them years and years and years and they've just been so unresponsive. Do you basically say, I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to share the gospel with them ever again. This requires some discernment. And I don't know if I have a true answer. But what I would say is this. Number one, you should always give a verbal witness of the gospel to people. And if they reject with hostility towards you, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't share again. It may mean there needs to be some time. And it may mean you need to do it in a different approach. But what you can be doing behind the scenes is praying for them and encouraging them and being their friend. But there comes some point in time, and I think God will show this to you, when you've done everything in your quote-unquote power and they basically act like a pig and a dog over a long extended period of time and you basically say, okay, I'm not going to share the gospel with them ever again. But I'm still going to pray for them. I'm still going to shed tears for them. I'm still going to love them, but I'm not going to throw, I'm not going to keep throwing what's holy before them because they keep trampling it. And I don't know when that point is. But I think Jesus is giving us some discernment because he's basically telling us, don't, don't throw what is holy before the dogs. And don't give your pearls before 
swine because they're going to trample and they're going to attack you. So be discerning. Show a little judgment. Any questions on that? I don't know how that all plays out. Has anybody had something like that where they've shared with them and eventually it was just like, I can't share with you anymore because you're so hostile. I don't, my point is, here's a couple things. I don't think you ever give up on praying for them. And it could be that you may be the one who planted the seed, but somebody else comes along and does the watering. And then finally somebody comes along and then they listen to that person. They get saved three or four people down the road, but it was you that they, for some reason, had a problem with. So don't ever underestimate the the seeds you're sowing in that situation. I don't know how it all plays out, but I do know that Jesus says not to do it. Any questions on that? Okay, let's go to asking. Asking. Verse 7 of chapter 7, we're back in Matthew. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more for your, will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, what does Jesus command us to do? Three things. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. They're all basically saying the same thing. And they're all in the present tense, which means a constant asking, seeking, knocking. It shows kind of a passion. Constantly, you need to constantly be asking, constantly be seeking, constantly be knocking. Um, James tells us this in James 4, 2-3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Question, what is the it that will be given to us? Jesus just says it. Now, before we attempt to answer what the it is, because I think there's an it, there's an answer here. Remember, this verse is not, this verse is not, this verse, if you take it out of context, this verse is part of what? The entire sermon. Okay? So this verse comes in a flow of thought in his entire sermon. So let's first see how this verse has been misapplied because some people will rip this verse out of context and they'll make it say something that it doesn't say. For example, this is not a carte blanche blank check to get God to do whatever we want him to do. Just ask God and he'll give it to you. Seek, if you seek hard enough and you ask hard enough, God will give it to you, whatever it is, whatever you want. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. 
prosperity gospel. God will give you your ever heart's desire as long as you just keep bugging him for it. Keep asking, keep begging, keep seeking, keep knopping. He will give it. Now here's the danger of the prosperity gospel, the name it, claim it, televangelist. If you listen to their terminology, here's what they believe. There are power in your words, and your words create things, and your words create faith, and based upon what you say, God is obligated to ask based upon your words. So don't ever speak negative. Always speak positive because the power is in your words, and your words bring God to command to do what you want him to do. Anybody have a problem with that? Artaxerdia tells a story. Our, our friend Artaxerdia, who's a pastor, and you know, I listened to him. I was listening to some of his sermons today, driving back and forth to Denver. But he tells a story about how he was in a church. He was invited to a church, um, and he was on vacation or something. And he and his wife—they didn't know what the church was like. And he and his wife were sitting there, and it was time for the pastoral prayer. And the pastor's, you know, he's praying to the Lord, and he says. Lord, I command you to do this. And started laying all these things at commanding. And Art said he looked up to see if the guy was still alive. (laughs) But if you listen to these televangelists, it's almost as if God's indebted to us and we can command him to do what we want him to do in the power of our words. And they'll use this passage of scripture. If you just ask and you seek and you knock and you ask, you know, it will be given to you, and, and it can be whatever you want. So if it is a million dollars, or it is that jet, or it is health, wealth, and prosperity, God is obligated to give it to you because you've asked, you've seeked, and you've knocked. You've bugged God long enough that he's bound to give it. But here's the problem. What happens if you don't get what you want, and you sincerely ask God? Well, the televangelist will tell you a couple of things. Number one, you didn't have enough faith, so it's your fault. And what's that going to lead to? If it's your fault and you didn't have enough faith, it's going to lead to anger, despair, and eventually you're just going to get mad at God and not believe Him. Because you're told... Hey, if you just keep asking, God's obligated. Now, here's the problem that we have. Anytime you hear a teacher or anytime you hear a preacher, anytime you hear somebody, a prophet, apostle, whoever these, these crazy people are, anytime you hear the words, God is obligated, dot, 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 do not listen to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? What does it mean when it says God is obligated? What does that mean? Somehow, I, God is in my debt, and he has to do these things for you. Is God obligated to do anything? If anything, God is obligated by his very nature as a holy God to obliterate all of us. If we're going to say God is obligated to do something based upon his nature, his nature is holy and just and righteous, and if he's obligated to anything, it's to, it's to, to fulfill his nature as holy to punish sin, and therefore all of us should be punished. So anytime you say God is obligated, you've cut the guts out of grace. It no longer ceases to be grace. Grace is what God chooses to give us, not what he's obligated to give us. And so the health, wealth, and prosperity, the word faith movement, whatever you want to call it, it has created a wake of disillusioned 
people who've tried their hardest to get God to do stuff for them, and then when it doesn't happen, it's their fault. They didn't have enough faith, or they keep giving more and more money to a ministry so that their financial breakthrough will come, and they eventually go broke. So it's, it's, a, it's a very unhealthy pattern. And so these televangelists can lift this out of, the, out of context and say, if you ask and you seek and you knock, it will be given to you, and it's whatever you want. Now, let's just stop and ask a very important question. How, long, how many chapters have we been in this sermon? All of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and almost halfway or a, th- or a th- fourth through chapter 7. At this point, we've got to ask the question, why does Jesus put this, this section right here in the sermon? Why is all of a sudden right here? It seems like it's just kind of pops. It should pop out at you this point in the sermon. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. At this point, we need to stop and ask, why, why is it here? At this point, and I think each week we've been feeling this, we can be truly overwhelmed by everything Jesus is commanding us to do. Can we live up to this standard of holiness? Or do we come away feeling helpless and hopeless at our ability to keep these teachings and we can begin to despair? I mean, think about what he's talked about all through this. At some point, have you guys felt it the way I have? At some point, you take your breath and say, now, wait a minute, Jesus. What you're asking is pretty, pretty high up there, is it not? Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? Check anger in my heart because it's like murder. Don't lust because it's like adultery. Where my treasure is, there my heart is. Don't, 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 don't worry. Don't judge others. At this point, you can begin to despair in your lack of ability to do what Jesus is asking. So what do we need in order to do what God is calling us to do? What's the it? I think contextually, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but I think I can make a case that the it is righteousness. What did he say at the very beginning? Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Your righteousness, let's just go back and look, let's just trace it. Let's go back and trace it. Chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God's going to give it to you. If you hunger and thirst for it, you will receive this righteousness. Verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You go down to... Verse chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And then go down to chapter 6, verse 31. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. Now, we've already seen in relation to righteousness, what have we seen? Hunger, Thirst, seek, 
for righteousness. And what's the promise? It, all these things will be added to you. You will be satisfied. God will answer your need for righteousness. If you hunger, if you thirst, if you seek for it, God will answer it. And here we come to this point in the sermon where we feel overwhelmed and we feel burdened and we feel guilty. We feel like, there's no way I can obey. Jesus stops and says, let's stop. Take a deep breath. If you ask for righteousness and you seek for righteousness and you knock for righteousness, this righteousness will be given to you. You're going to receive it. So what do we desperately need to obey Jesus? We need grace-empowered righteousness that comes as a gift. Look at verse 11. If then you who are evil, and notice how Jesus calls us evil, you're evil. Well, I thought we were all good. No, listen to Jesus. You're evil. If, you're, if, if, if we evil people know how to give gift, good, good, good gifts to our children, okay, we are evil sinners, and we know how to give a good birthday present to our earthly kids. I mean, if we know how to be, if we as evil people know how to be good parents and give good gifts to our kids, and we're evil, his point is, how much more will your heavenly Father, who's not evil, who's holy, give what? What does it say? Good things. It says he will give good things. Now, what are the good things? Is it whatever you want? The good things, I think, in context are the grace and the power to be able to have the righteousness to do what he's called you to do. And the reason I believe that is look at Luke eleven thirteen. It's on your screen. It's the same exact wording in Luke's gospel, but he changes one word. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what or who? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What does it say in Matthew? Good things. What does Luke call it? The Holy Spirit. So which is it? Is it good things or is it the Holy Spirit? What's the answer? Yes. Who's the source of the good things? The Holy Spirit. Who gives us the grace to be able to be righteous? The Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, listen, I know at this point in the sermon you're probably feeling overwhelmed that you can't do this, and you can't. So I want to challenge you to hunger and thirst and ask and seek and pray and desire this righteousness And because your Father's a good God, He's going to give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to have the good things, to be able to have the grace to do what I've called you to do. And 2 Peter 1, 3-4 tells us that. We've got a a cross-reference there in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power, power, has granted to us or has given to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his, very, or his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because excuse me, of sinful desires. So, if we ask for grace, if we ask for 
righteousness, if we ask for good things, if we ask for the Holy Spirit, what will our Heavenly Father give us? Is He going to give us a snake? Is He going to give us a scorpion? Or is He going to give it to us? He's going to give it to us because Peter says He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, this asking, this seeking, this finding is not a blank check to ask God to give you whatever you want. It is grace-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered um, power to be able to accomplish or obey or have the righteousness of everything Jesus is telling us to do in this passage of Scripture. So the Sermon on the Mount is not to pull yourself up by your bootstrap and do the best you can in your own power to, to do what Jesus is telling you to do. It is, I am desperately not able to do this, and so I've got to ask, seek, and knock, and ask God for the grace to be able to do it. And he, since he's a good Heavenly Father, he loves to give good things to his children, so he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. He's going to give us all things. He's going to give us this righteousness, this Holy Spirit-empowered righteousness, this grace to be able to obey. And that gives us encouragement. So, we are commanded by him to diligently and persistently and daily ask for this righteousness that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, ask, seek, and knock are in the present tense, which means it's not just a one-time asking which shows that every day we're desperate. Every day we can't do this in our own power. Every day we're weak and we need to ask God, hey, I need to hunger and thirst for this righteousness. I need to ask for this grace. And then the promise is the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you. He's already in you, obviously. But the point is, is that that power that comes from the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you as a good thing, as grace to be able to empower you to live in righteousness. Does that make sense? That's what I think the it is. Not a blank check to command God to get you whatever you want. All right. Any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah, there's, that's a good point, Russell. There's two, there's two types of righteousness that, that are talked about in the Bible. There's what we call positional righteousness, which the fancy word for this would be our justification in the sense that this is, the, this is our salvation. This is, where we, this is the um, position that we stand in. Uh, we're saved. We're justified. Um, we've come into a relationship with Christ. That doesn't change. There's also what's called progressive righteousness. And this has really nothing to do with our initial salvation. This is more about the, the holiness in our lives and our growth in godliness and how we are um, living in obedience. Now, obviously, you can't have progressive righteousness without positional righteousness. You need this first. This comes in your salvation. But to the Christian, he's telling them to ask for this. Because we already have this, right, as a Christian? So as a Christian, we ask for that progressive righteousness in the fact that I know I'm saved, I'm accepted by God, and so I'm asking for the power to live the Christian life. 
to the non-Christians in the audience, it is, no, you've got to get this, you've got to get right with God first before any of this can happen. And so you need to ask, seek this positional righteousness that comes in your salvation. Does that make sense, Russell? Yeah. So I think both, since there's both audiences there, the crowd and the disciples, he's really addressing his disciples, but sometimes the things he says applies to the crowd as well. Yeah. Good, 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 good observation. All right, let's talk about the golden rule. It's in the Bible, by the way. Matthew seven twelve. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, let's just stop there. Most religions in the world have some variation on this teaching, do they not? You go to a non-Christian today and say, do you believe in the golden rule? Most of them would say, well, yeah. Uh, do unto others as you'd like to have them do unto you. You go to a Hindu. They'll probably have some version of that in Hinduism. You go to a Buddhist, some version of that in Buddhism. You go to all these different religions, there's some version of that. Like honesty pays. Or you may even think about it in terms of karma. What goes around comes around. If I'm good to you, you will be good to me. And if I do good things, good things will happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things will happen to me. And so there's this kind of superstitious karma. The question we've got to ask is, how is the golden rule actually Christian here? What separates this from just any type of just be nice to people platitudes that anybody believes? Well, first of all, let's look and see how Jesus says it. He roots it in the law and the prophets in which he came to fulfill. So it has to be connected to a right relationship with Jesus. For this is the law and the prophets. He connects it to the Old Testament. And remember earlier he said, I've come to fulfill the law and prophets. So really, the golden rule is, this is the, this is the sum of the Old Testament. But I've come to fulfill the Old Testament, so really, this is the sum of what I'm teaching you, and the only way you can do this is through your connection to me, Jesus. But secondly, we do good to others not to earn God's favor or to somehow win brownie points with others, but we do good because in the gospel, God's been good to us. That's what makes it Christian. Other religions, you do good because it's self-centered, right? I do good to you so that you will do good to me. Isn't that right? That's my, my whole motivation for doing good to you is so that you will treat me right. The Christian motivation is God has treated me so gracious in the gospel that I want to treat you that way because of how God's treated me. You see the difference? One is very selfish. The other is very gospel-oriented. So we do it because of how God's treated us. Look at Romans chapter 13, 9 through 10. Paul says, for the commandments. So he's going through the Ten Commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What's the root of the, gold, uh, of, the, of the golden rule? It's love. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. And so our ability to do the golden rule comes from God's love for us flowing to other people. And look at Ephesians 4.32, because this is a perfect example. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Paul could have stopped right there. And that would, not be different, that would be no different than any other religion. Be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. Would you not go out and say to people, if you went out to a public school today, would not they have some rules like that on their, on, in their classroom? Be kind and be forgiving and be, and be nice. Just because it's the right thing to do. But notice how Paul ends the verse. As God in Christ forgave you. So what's your motivation to be good and kind and nice and forgiving? It's not just to be kind, nice, and forgiving. The motivation is because that's what God has done for you in Christ. And as a result, because of the gospel and the cross, your motivation now is to mimic that to others out of love. Okay? You see, that, you see how the golden rule is, is Christian as opposed to just moral? Yes. Okay, yeah, they, may, they make it, yeah. Some people would say, you know, the, like some people will, put, will say the golden rule is a good way to live by. And if I do good to others, number one, they'll do good to me. And number two, then God is obligated to somehow get me into heaven because I've been good. So the golden rule becomes the way you get into heaven by being a good person. Do you see how selfish it is? I am being good so others are good to me, and I am being good so that God will love me. It's all about what I can do to somehow earn somebody else's love. Whereas the gospel says, no, Christ loved us when we did not deserve to be loved. He gave himself for us when we deserved not to be, not to be saved, and he saved us, and as a result of that, we selflessly give ourselves to others because we're mimicking or imitating what God's done for us. Not to earn God's favor, but as a result of his love for us, we're showing love to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost the same thing. Okay. Now we get to the conclusion of the sermon. And Jesus doesn't say, for my conclusion, Jesus gets very, very specific in his conclusion, as a good sermon does. I wish I could preach like Jesus. I wish everybody could preach like Jesus. He's going to bring this sermon to a close, and what he's going to do, he's going to give four warnings. You see the warnings there? Four warnings that are characterized by pairs of opposites. Okay? Let me show you just what the four warnings are. Two ways. A narrow gate and a wide gate. Two trees. One that bears fruit and one that bears thorns. Two claims. One that said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. And then two builders, one that builds on the sand and one that builds on the rock. And they all basically teach the same thing in a somewhat different way. But let me just, before we even start, does the Bible know of any third category or third way? Or does the Bible say, you're either lost or you're saved. You're either in Christ or you're in sin. You're either for God or you're against God. Is there, I guess the third category, maybe the other way to put it is, does the Bible know of any middle ground or limbo when it comes to the claims of Christ? Do you ever see that in the Bible? You don't. And that's why Jesus says there's two. 
He doesn't say there's three different ways you can go about doing this. No, all these warnings that come at the end are two. And one is clearly not of God, and one is clearly of God. And so Jesus is very clearly at the very end of the sermon saying, listen, I'm bringing this sermon down to conclusion, and I'm challenging my hearers, and I think this is where he's getting evangelistic. I think this is where he's talking to the crowd now. I've stopped talking to the Christians. I'm going to talk to the crowd now. There are two paths. There are two trees. There are two builders. There are two ways. There's one and there's the other. And so let's look at how Jesus brings this. Now, the question you... Put this up here. There's no middle ground with Jesus. One is either saved or lost. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is preaching to believers, which we established that he does at the beginning, he's preaching to his disciples, the question you may ask is, well, why in the world would he give these warnings to Christians? Why do Christians need to hear these things? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, and I've kind of answered a few of those. Number one, in addition to his disciples, there's a large crowd who's listening. And they're not yet believers. So in this, Jesus is becoming evangelistic and commanding them to repent and believe. But I think the scarier thing, there are false converts or pretenders who need to be confronted with their hypocrisy so that they can repent and believe in order to be saved. There are those in the crowd that may think they are saved when they are in fact not. And then, all throughout the Bible, we see warnings given to believers to help us examine our faith and to bring about the assurance of salvation. So let me just ask you a question. On a Sunday morning when I preach, I have three categories in my mind when I'm preaching. In my mind, I know that the majority of people in our church are Christians. And then I also know that I look out there and say, there's a lot of people, I don't know who they are, and so I don't know if they're Christian or not, so I'm going to assume they're a non-Christian. They may be a Christian, but I'm assuming there's non-Christians in the room. Okay? So there's Christians and there's non-Christians in the room. Two categories, right? But there's a third category. I just said there's no third category. There's not, but there's a third category. There's people in the room who think they are Christians, but in fact they are not. So they're really part of the second category. But why is that category so dangerous? Christians know they're saved. At least most of them hopefully know they're saved. Non-Christians probably know they're not saved. But there's the people that come in, and these are the people, the most people I'm most concerned about are the people that think they're saved, they're not. Because what do you have to do? You have to get them lost before you get them saved. And if they already think they're saved... It's a lot of work to get them lost, <laughs> okay? That kind of makes weird sense, but I'm just saying. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, okay, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm speaking to believers, but I know Jesus is probably saying, I can't speak for Jesus, but I think the text will tell us there are those that are lost that need to repent and believe. There are those that are saved that need to examine themselves and, 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 and see, yes, I am truly saved, and it gives me the assurance I am saved. Um, and then there's those that are pretending that are false converts that need to get saved. So there's three categories, but really there's two. Is the third category a Christian or a non-Christian? They're a non-Christian, but they think they're a Christian. Well, it doesn't matter what you think, it's what you are. It's kind of like, I think I'm pregnant. Well, no, you take the EPT test and you find out if you really are pregnant. 
You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either a Christian or you're not, no matter what you may think. And so I think Jesus is addressing this. So let's look at the first warning. You guys ready? Verses 13 and 14. This is the first of the four warnings, and it compares two ways or two gates or two paths. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. His main point here is the way to heaven is through the narrow gate. Now, I want to give you four observations about what he's saying here. Number one, it is narrow. Which means what? Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's not one of many good ways. He's not a way. He is the narrow way. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How ex- more explicit could Jesus be? And that's about the most explicit statement that Je- out of the mouth of Jesus. There's a narrow way that's going to lead to salvation, and that narrow way is me. And I am the only way, the only truth, the only life, and you can't get to heaven except through me. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 12 reiterates that. Peter's preaching, and he says in Acts 4, 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he goes on to explain how that's Jesus. There's no other name by, by, by which we must be saved. So the reason that it's narrow is because Jesus is the only way. But what else does it say? It is hard. Verse 14, The gate is narrow, and the way is Hard is hard. The word hard there that Jesus uses can often be accompanied with the word tribulation. It's not hard to become a Christian because it's by grace, but when you become a Christian, do you take upon facing a life that could be hard? What did Jesus say in Luke 9? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Does that sound easy to you? Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life. And then in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So it's narrow, Jesus is the only way, and it's hard. Now, let me just stop right there. It, it, it's, at first glance, we may not get done tonight, even on this first one, which will be fine, because I may go off on a little tangent here. I, I didn't even think about this. Think about evangelism for a moment. When you share the gospel with someone, what do we want to, what's our, what's our human reaction wanting to do? What do we want to make the gospel sound like? Easy and not narrow. If we tell people that believing in Jesus is wide 
and it's not hard, we've actually gone against the exact words that Jesus told us. So in our evangelism, what are we tempted to say? Just ask Jesus into your heart and he will give you peace and all your troubles will go away and you can just pray this quick prayer and believe in Jesus. Is that the gospel? If you listen to most of Christian broadcasting and television and books, that's what people are selling is the gospel. What if you stood up before people and said, listen, if you want to become a Christian, it demands your all. It demands surrender. It means that you've got to take up your cross daily. It means you've got to follow him. It means you've got to repent of your sins. It means you've got to lose your life. It means Jesus is the only way of salvation. And any other way that you try to do to get yourself saved is going to lead you straight to hell. Come believe in Jesus. Is that the true gospel? Yes, but when our minds, we think, if I tell somebody that, they're not going to buy it or respond. Well, we can't control that. They may or they may not. We have no control over that. But one thing Jesus says, what does he say? There are few who find it. Now, what does this mean and what does this not mean? Okay. Jesus doesn't define for us the number. Okay? We don't have a quantitative number on few. We don't know how many people will eventually be in heaven compared to those who will be in hell. But by observation in church history shows us that the majority of people reject Jesus and follow another path. Yes. yeah you know and that's where I, I think that there's at the end of the day we are never told in the Bible that we're in charge of the results or what happens time and time again as Christians we are told our responsibility is to share to tell to pray, to urge, to call people to repent and believe. And once it, once it goes from that point, we no longer have control. Can God save somebody on their deathbed? Yes. Does God do that? Yes. Will I know? You may or you may not. The one thing you have to remember is that you've been faithful to what God's called you to do by sharing and that at the end of the day, you still don't have control whether they do that or not. So the one thing you focus on is just being obedient to do it. Is, does that help or is that... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, like there's a deathbed... Yeah, there, and it's hard to tell a person's motives, but I, think, but I think the way that we share the gospel is very important. 
if you share the gospel in a way that appeals to fleshly motives more than the reason you need to do this is because you're a sinner and you need to repent and you need to come to Christ, um, you know, the way I wouldn't do it would be I wouldn't go up to someone dying and say, hey, do you want to go to heaven? If you do, pray this prayer with me and, I'll, and you'll go to heaven. I mean, because who's, who's on their deathbed going to say, no, I really don't want to go to heaven? I mean, but the hard part is if somebody's on their deathbed, what, what do they need to know? They need to know, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. If I die right now, I will be out of his presence in hell. Jesus has offered himself as a perfect savior. He's died on the cross. He can offer complete forgiveness. That forgiveness is not automatic. I need to repent of my sin and to confess my sin. I need to totally trust in him. And I'm coming to him because it's him. And I'm not coming so I can get a free ticket to heaven and help my conscience feel better in the last few minutes before I die. Now, as a chaplain, you don't say it like that because you've got to be sensitive to their situation. But you, I think we just need to be careful on how we share the gospel. Because a lot of times, the way we share the gospel appeals more to a person's fleshly human needs and wants as opposed to what the gospel really calls us to do. Does that make sense? Now, let's just look at this. Luke 13, 23 and 24. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek eternal life and not be able. So in Luke and in Matthew, Jesus has said there will be few Christians. Now, with that being said, the Bible also says there will be a great multitude that no one can count, as numerous as stars in the sky and sand on the seashore in heaven, based upon the promise made to Abraham, based upon the promise made to Isaac, and what we see in Revelation, the number is. So don't ask me what the number is. is but from your observation let me just ask you from your observation without knowing people's hearts do you just in looking at the world do you see more people not christians than christians just by what you see at the end of the day i don't know narrow jesus is the only way it's hard take up your it's narrow Jesus is the only way. It's hard. Take up your cross. Follow me. There are few that find it, yet there's a great multitude, and ultimately it leads to eternal life. But we're talking about dichotomies here, right? What's the other path? The other path leads to destruction. This gate is wide, which means what? It doesn't matter what you believe. 
you got all these different avenues of people's belief system, whether it's New Age, whether it's atheism, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Oprahism, I don't know whatism, myselfism, all these different isms. And basically, Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It's this huge, wide gate where people are just going through it because whatever you want to believe is cool. And the way is easy. Why is it easy? Well, this way doesn't call you to weep and mourn over your sin. It doesn't call you to be accountable to God. It doesn't command you to repent and believe. It doesn't call you to take up your cross and daily. It doesn't call you to die to self. It doesn't call you to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It doesn't tell you anything about the nature of your heart. You see, what is the, what is the natural course of a person that's walking in the wide path? They follow their heart. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 8, 5 through 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but to set, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then there's many on this path. You're just doing what you feel. And then there's many on this path. Again, I don't know the number, but observation shows us that, you know, a lot of people are walking that way. But then ultimately, where does this lead to? It leads to destruction. This word destruction does not mean extinction or annihilation, but it means eternal conscious torment in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the path. So there's no middle ground. Like, is there another path you can go that's kind of in between the two paths? Does Jesus say, this one leads to life, This one leads to destruction, but there's kind of a middle one where you can kind of play both sides and figure out where you want to go in the end. No, there's there's only two. There's the road that leads to life. It's narrow. It's hard. Many, there's few that find it. It leads to life. The other road is wide. It's easy. There's many on it, but it leads to destruction. 